0: SECTION 12 OF THE GREAT EVENTS BY FAMOUS HISTORIANS, VOLUME 3. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY MIKE Botes. THE GREAT EVENTS BY FAMOUS HISTORIANS, VOLUME 3. EDITED BY CHARLES F. HORNE rossiter johnson and john rudd the burning of rome under nero a d sixty four by Henrik sinkevich part two the thunder of the flames was more terrible than the roar of wild beasts and the hour had come now in which he must think of his own safety for the river of fire was flowing nearer and nearer from the direction of the island and rolls of smoke covered the alley almost completely. The taper which he carried was quenched from the current of air. Vinicius rushed to the street, and ran at full speed toward the Via Portuensis whence he had come. The fire seemed to pursue him with burning breath, now surrounding him with fresh clouds of smoke, now covering him with sparks which fell on his hair, neck, and clothing. The tunic began to smolder on him in places. He cared not, but run forward, lest he might be stifled from smoke. He had the taste of soot and burning in his mouth. His throat and lungs were as if on fire. The blood rushed to his head, and at moments all things, even the smoke itself, seemed red to him. Then he thought, this is living fire, better throw myself upon the ground and quickly perish. The running tortured him more and more. His head, neck and shoulders were streaming with sweat, which scalded like boiling water. But he ran on as if drunk, staggering from one side of the street to the other meanwhile something changed in that monstrous conflagration which had embraced the giant city everything which till then had only glimmered burst forth visibly into one sea of flame the wind had ceased to bring smoke that smoke which had collected in the streets was borne away by a mad whirl of heated air That whirl drove with it millions of sparks, so that Venetius was running in a fiery cloud, as it were. But he was able to see before him all the better. And in a moment, almost when he was ready to fall, he saw the end of the street. That sight gave him fresh strength. Passing the corner he found himself in a street, which led to the Via Portuensis and the Codetan field. The sparks ceased to drive him. He understood that if he could run to the Via Portuensis, he was safe, even were he to faint on it. At the end of the street, he saw again a cloud, as it seemed, which stopped the exit. If that is smoke, thought he, I cannot pass. He ran with a remnant of his strength. On the way he threw off his tunic, which, on fire from the sparks, was burning him like the shirt of Nessus, having only a capitium around his head and before his mouth. When he had run farther he saw that what he had taken for smoke was dust, from which rose a multitude of cries and voices. The rubble are plundering houses, thought Venetius. But he ran toward the voices. In any case, people were there. They might assist him. In this hope, he shouted for aid with all his might before he reached them. But this was his last effort. It grew redder, still in his eyes. Breath failed his lungs. Strength failed his bones he fell. They heard him, however, or rather saw him. Two men run with gourds full of water. Vinicius, who had fallen from exhaustion but had not lost consciousness, seized the gourd with both hands and emptied one half of it. Thanks, said he. Place me on my feet. I can walk on alone. The other laborer poured water on his head. The two not only placed him on his feet, but raised him from the ground and carried him to the others, who surrounded him and asked if he had suffered seriously. This tenderness astonished Venetius. "'People, who are ye?' asked he. We are breaking down houses so that the fire may not reach the Via Portuensis, answered one of the laborers. Ye come to my aid when I had fallen. Thanks to you. We are not permitted to refuse aid, answered a number of voices. Vinicius, who from early morning had seen brutal crowds slaying and robbing, looked with more attention on the faces around him, and said, May Christ reward you! Praise to his name! exclaimed the whole chorus of voices. It was evening, but one could see as in daylight, for the conflagration had increased. It seemed that not single parts of the city were burning, but the whole city, through the length and the breadth of it. The sky was red as far as the eye could see it, and that night in the world was a red night. The light from the burning city filled the sky as far as human eye could reach. The moon rose large and full from behind the mountains, and, inflamed at once by the glare, took on the color of heated brass. It seemed to look with amazement, On the world ruling city which was perishing. In the rose colored abysses of heaven, rose colored stars were glittering. But in distinction from usual nights, the earth was brighter than the heavens. Rome, like a giant pile, illuminated the whole campania. In the bloody light were seen distant mountains, towns, villas, temples monuments, and the aqueducts stretching toward the city from all the adjacent hills. On the aqueducts were swarms of people who had gathered there for safety or to gaze at the burning. Meanwhile, the dreadful element was embracing new divisions of the city. It was impossible to doubt that criminal hands were spreading the fire since new conflagrations were breaking out all the time, in places remote from the principal fire. From the heights on which Rome was founded, the flames flowed like waves of the sea, into the valleys densely occupied by houses, houses of five and six stories, full of shops, booths, movable wooden amphitheaters, built to accommodate various spectacles. And finally, storehouses of wood, olives, grain, nuts, pine cones, the kernels of which nourished the more needy population, and clothing, which, through Caesar's favor, was distributed from time to time among the rubble huddled into narrow alleys. In those places the fire, finding abundance of inflammable materials, became almost a series of explosions and took possessions of whole streets with unheard of rapidity. People encamping outside the city were standing on the aqueducts, knew from the color of the flame what was burning. The furious power of the wind carried forth from the fiery gulf Thousands and millions of burning shells of walnuts and almonds, which, shooting suddenly into the sky, like countless flocks of bright butterflies, burst with a crackling, or, driven by the wind, fell in other parts of the city, on aqueducts and fields beyond Rome. All thought of rescue seemed out of place. Confusion increased every moment. For, on one side, the population of the city was fleeing through every gate to places outside. On the other, the fire had lured in thousands of people from the neighborhood, such as dwellers in small towns, peasants, and half-wild shepherds of the Campania brought in by hope of plunder. The shout, Rome is perishing, did not leave the lips of the crowd. The ruin of the city seemed at that time to end every rule and loosen all bonds which hitherto had joined people in a single integrity. The mob, in which slaves were more numerous, cared nothing for the lordship of Rome. Destruction of the city could only free them. Hence, here and there, they assumed a threatening attitude. Violence and robbery were extending. It seemed that only the spectacle of the perishing city arrested attention and restrained for the moment an outburst of slaughter, which would begin as soon as the city was turned into ruins. Hundreds of thousands of slaves, forgetting that Rome, besides temples and walls, possessed some tens of legions in all parts of the world appeared merely waiting for a watchword and a leader. People began to mention the name of Spartacus, but Spartacus was not alive. Meanwhile, citizens assembled and armed themselves, each with what he could. The most monstrous reports were current at all the gates. Some declared that Vulcan, commanded by Jupiter, Was destroying the city with fire from beneath the earth, others that Vesta was taking vengeance for Rubria. People with these convictions did not care to save anything, but besieging the temples implored mercy of the gods. It was repeated most generally, however, that Caesar had given command to burn Rome so as to free himself from orders which rose from the Subura, and build a new city under the name of Neronia. Rage seized the populace at the thought of this, and if, as Venetius believed, a leader had taken advantage of that outburst of hatred, Nero's hour would have struck whole years before it did. It was said also that Caesar had gone mad, that he would command praetorians and gladiators to fall upon the people and make a general slaughter. Others swore by the gods that wild beasts had been let out of all the vivaria at Bronzebeard's command. Men had seen on the streets lions with burning manes and mad elephants and bisons trampling down people in crowds. There was even some truth in this. For, in certain places, elephants, at the sight of the approaching fire, had burst vivaria, and, gaining their freedom, rushed away from the fire in wild fright, destroying everything before them like a tempest public report estimated at tens of thousands the number of persons who had perished in the conflagration. In truth, a great number had perished. There were people who, losing all their property or those dearest their hearts, threw themselves willingly into the flames from despair. Others were suffocated by smoke in the middle of the city, between the Capitol on one side, and the Quirinal, the Viminal, and Esquiline on the other, as also between the Palatine and the Silian Hill, where the streets were most densely occupied, the fire began in so many places at once that whole crowds of people, while fleeing in one direction, struck unexpectedly on a new wall of fire in front of them, and died a dreadful death in a deluge of flame. In terror, in destruction and bewilderment, people knew not where to flee. The streets were obstructed with goods, and in many narrow places were simply closed. Those who took refuge in those markets and squares of the city where the Flavian amphitheater stood afterward, near the temple of the earth, near the portico of Silvia, and higher up, at the temples of Juno and Lucinia, between the Clivus Viribius and the old Esquilian gate, perished from heat, surrounded by a sea of fire. In places not reached by the flames were found afterward hundreds of bodies, burned to a crisp though here and there unfortunates tore up flat stones and half buried themselves in defense against the heat hardly a family inhabiting the center of the city survived in full hence along the walls at the gates on all roads were heard howls of despairing women calling on their dear names of those who had perished in the throng or the fire and so while some were imploring the gods others blasphemed them because of this awful catastrophe old men were seen coming from the temple of jupiter liberator stretching forth their hands and crying if thou be a liberator say thy altars and the city but despair turned mainly against the old Roman gods, who, in the minds of the populace, were bound to watch over the city more carefully than others. They had proved themselves powerless, hence were insulted. On the other hand, it happened on the Via Asinaria, that when a company of Egyptian priests appeared conducting a statue of Isis which they had saved from the temple near the porta selimontana a crowd of people rushed among the priests attached themselves to the chariot which they drew to the appian gate and seizing the statue placed it in the temple of mars overwhelming the priests of that deity who dared to resist them in other places people invoked serapis baal or jehovah whose adherents swarming out of the alleys in the neighbourhood of the subura and the trans tiber filled with shouts and uproar the fields near the walls in their cries were heard tones as if of triumph when therefore some of the citizens joined the chorus and glorified the lord of the world others indignant at this glad shouting strove to repress it by violence. Here and there hymns were heard, sung by men in the bloom of life, by old men, by women and children, hymns, wonderful and solemn, whose meaning they understood not, but in which were repeated from moment to moment the words, Behold, the judge cometh in the day of wrath and disaster thus this deluge of restless and sleepless people encircled the burning city like a tempest-driven sea but neither despair nor blasphemy nor hymn helped in any way the destruction seemed as irresistible perfect and pitiless as predestination itself around pompeii's amphitheatre stores of hemp caught fire and ropes used in circuses arenas and every kind of machine at the games and with them the adjoining buildings containing barrels of pitch with which ropes were smeared in a few hours all that part of the city beyond which lay the campus martius was so lighted by bright yellow flames that for a time it seemed to the spectators only half conscious from terror that in the general ruin the order of night and day had been lost, and that they were looking at sunshine, but later a monstrous bloody gleam extinguished all other colors of flame. From the sea of fire shot up to the heated sky gigantic fountains and pillars of flame spreading at their summits into fiery branches and feathers, then the wind bore them away, turned them into golden threads, into hair, into sparks, and swept them on over the Campania toward the Alban hills. The night became brighter, the air itself seemed penetrated, not only with light, but with flame. The Tiber flowed on as living fire. The hapless city was turned into one pandemonium. The conflagration seized more and more space took hills by storm, flooded level places, drowned valleys, raged, roared, and thundered. The city burned on. The Circus Maximus had fallen in ruins. Entire streets and alleys, in part which began to burn first, were falling in turn. After every fall, pillars of flame rose for a time to the very sky. The wind had changed, and blew now with mighty force from the sea, bearing toward the Cilion, the Esquiline, and the Viminal, rivers of flame, brands, and cinders. Still, the authorities provided for rescue. At command of Tigellinus, who had hastened from Antium the third day before, houses on the Esquiline were torn down, so that the fire reaching empty spaces, died of itself. That was, however, undertaken solely to save a remnant of the city. To save that which was burning was not to be thought of. There was need also to guard against further results of the ruin. Incalculable wealth had perished in Rome. All the property of its citizens had vanished. Hundreds of thousands of people were wandering in utter want outside the walls. Hunger had begun to pinch this throng the second day, for the immense stores of provisions in the city had burned with it. In the universal disorder and in the destruction of authority, no one had thought of furnishing new supplies. Only after the arrival of Tigellinus were proper orders sent to Ostia. But meanwhile, the people had grown more threatening. Besides flour, as much baked bread as possible was brought at his command, not only from Ostia, but from all towns and neighboring villages. When the first installment came at night to the Emporium, The people broke the chief gate toward the Aventine, seized all supplies in the twinkle of an eye and caused terrible disturbance. In the light of the conflagration they fought for loaves and trampled many of them into the earth. Flour from torn bags whitened like snow the whole space, from the granary to the arches of Drusus and Germanicus. The uproar continued till soldiers seized the building and dispersed the crowd with arrows and missiles. Never since the invasion by the Gauls under Brennus had Rome beheld such disaster. People in despair compared the two conflagrations, but in the time of Brennus the capital remained. Now the capital was encircled by a dreadful wreath of flame. The marbles, it is true, were not blazing, but at night, when the wind swept the flames aside for a moment, rows of columns in the lofty sanctuary of Jove were visible, red as glowing coals. In the days of Brennus, moreover, Rome had a disciplined, integral people, attached to the city and its altars. But now crowds of many-tongued populace roamed, nomad-like, around the walls of burning Rome, people composed for the greater part of slaves and freedmen, excited, disorderly, and ready, under the pressure of want, to turn against authority and the city. But the very immensity of the fire which terrified every heart, disarmed the crowd in a certain measure. After fire might come famine and disease, and, to complete the misfortune, the terrible heat of July had appeared. It was impossible to breathe air inflamed both by fire and the sun. Night brought no relief. On the contrary, it presented a hell. During daylight, an awful and ominous spectacle met the eye. In the center, a giant city on heights was turned into a roaring volcano. Round about, as far as the Alban Hills was one boundless camp, formed of sheds, tents, huts, vehicles, bales, packs, stands, fires and all covered with smoke and dust, lighted by sun rays, reddened by passing through smoke. Everything filled with roars, shouts, threats, hatred, and terror, a monstrous swarm of men, women, and children. Mingled with queerides were Greeks, shaggy men from the north with blue eyes, africans and asiatics among citizens were slaves freedmen gladiators merchants mechanics servants and soldiers a real sea of people flowing round the island of fire various reports moved this sea as wind does a real one these reports were favorable and unfavorable. People told of immense supplies of wheat and clothing to be brought to the emporium and distributed gratis. It was said, too, that provinces in Asia and Africa would be stripped of their wealth at Caesar's command, and the treasures thus gained to be given to the inhabitants of Rome, so that each man might build his own dwelling. But it was noised about also that water in the aqueducts had been poisoned, that Nero intended to annihilate the city, destroy the inhabitants to the last person, then move to Greece or to Egypt and rule the world from a new place. Each report ran with lightning speed, and each found belief among the rabble, causing outbursts of hope anger terror or rage finally a kind of fever mastered those nomadic thousands the belief of christians that the end of the world by fire was at hand spread even among adherents of gods and extended daily people fell into torpor or madness in clouds lighted by the burning gods were seen gazing down on the ruin hands were stretched towards those gods then to implore pity or send them curses. Meanwhile, soldiers aided by a certain number of inhabitants continued to tear down houses on the Esquiline and the Cilian, as also in the Trans-Tiber. These divisions were saved, therefore, in considerable part. But in the city itself, were destroyed incalculable treasures accumulated through centuries of conquest, priceless works of art, splendid temples, the most precious monuments of Rome's past and Rome's glory. They foresaw that of all Rome there would remain barely a few parts on the edges, and that hundreds of thousands of people would be without a roof. Some spread reports that the soldiers were tearing down houses, not to stop the fire, but to prevent any part of the city from being saved. Tigellinus sent courier after courier to Antium, imploring Caesar in each letter to come and calm the despairing people with his presence. But Nero moved only when fire had seized the Domus Transitoria, And he hurried so, as not to miss the moment, in which the conflagration should be at its highest. Meanwhile, fire had reached the Via Nomentana, but turned from it at once with a change of wind toward the Via Lata and the Tiber. It surrounded the capital, spread along the Forum Boarium, destroyed everything which it had spared before, and approached the palatine a second time. Tigellinus, assembling all the praetorian forces, dispatched courier after courier to Caesar, with an announcement that he would lose nothing of the grandeur of the spectacle, for the fire had increased. But Nero, who was on the road, wished to come at night, so as to sate himself all the better. With a view of the perishing capital therefore he halted in the neighborhood of aqua albana and summoning to his tent the tragedian aliturus decided with his aid on posture look and expression learn fitting gestures disputing with the actor stubbornly whether at the words o sacred city which seemed more enduring than Ida. He was to raise both hands or, holding in one the Forminga, drop it by his side and raise only the other. This question seemed to him, then, more important than all others. Starting at last about nightfall, he took counsel of Petronius also whether to the lines describing the catastrophe he might add a few magnificent blasphemies against the gods, and whether, considered from the standpoint of art, they would not have rushed spontaneously from the mouth of a man in such a position, a man who was losing his birthplace. At length he approached the walls about midnight with his numerous court composed of whole detachments of nobles, senators, knights, freedmen, slaves, women, and children. Sixteen thousand praetorians, arranged in line of battle, along the road, guarded the peace and safety of his entrance, and held the excited populace at a proper distance. The people cursed, shouted, and hissed. On seeing the retinue, but dared not attack it. In many places, however, applause was given by the rabble, which, owning nothing, had lost nothing in the fire, and which hoped for a more bountiful distribution than usual of wheat, olives, clothing and money. Finally, shouts, hissing and applause were drowned in the blare of horns and trumpets which tigellinus had caused to be sounded nero on arriving at the ostian gate halted and said houseless ruler of houseless people where shall i lay my unfortunate head for the night after he had passed the clivus delphini he ascended the appian aqueduct on steps prepared purposely After him followed the Augustians and a choir of singers, bearing cithare, lutes, and other musical instruments, and all held breaths in their breasts, waiting to learn if he would say some great words, which for their own safety they ought to remember. But he stood sullen, silent, in a purple mantle, and a wreath of golden laurels, gazing at the raging might of the flames when terpnos gave him a golden lute he raised his eyes to the sky filled with conflagration as if he were waiting for inspiration the people pointed at him from afar as he stood in the bloody gleam in the distance fiery serpents were hissing the ancient and most sacred edifices were in flames The temple of Hercules, reared by Evander, was burning. The temple of Jupiter-Stator was burning. The temple of Luna, built by Servius Tullius. The house of Numa Pompilius. The sanctuary of Vesta, with the penates of the Roman people. Through waving flames the capital appeared at intervals. The past and the spirit of Rome were burning. But Caesar was there with the lute in his hand and the theatrical expression on his face, not thinking of his perishing country, but of his posture and the prophetic words, with which he might describe best the greatness of the catastrophe, rouse most admiration and receive the warmest plaudits. He detested that city he detested its inhabitants, he loved only his own songs and verses, hence he rejoiced in heart that at last he saw a tragedy like that which he was writing. The poet was happy, the declaimer felt inspired, the seeker for emotions was delighted at the awful sight, and thought with rapture that even the destruction of Troy was as nothing If compared with the destruction of that giant city, what more could he desire? There was world-ruling Rome in flames, and he, standing on the arches of the aqueduct with a golden lute, conspicuous, purple, admired, magnificent, and poetic. Down below, somewhere in the darkness... The people are muttering and storming. Let them mutter. Ages will elapse, thousands of years will pass, but mankind will remember and glorify the poet who that night sung the fall and the burning of Troy. What was Homer compared with him? What Apollo himself, with his hollowed-out lute? Here he raised his hands, and, striking the strings, with an exaggerated theatrical gesture, pronounced the words of Priam, O nest of my fathers, O dear cradle! His voice in the open air, with the roar of the conflagration, and the distant murmur of crowding thousands, seemed marvelously weak, uncertain, and low. In the sound of the accompaniment, like the buzzing of insects. But senators, dignitaries, and augustians assembled on the aqueduct, bowed their heads and listened in silent rapture. He sang long, and his motive was ever sadder. At moments when he stopped to catch breath, the chorus of singers repeated the last verse, then, Nero cast the tragic Sirma from his shoulder with a gesture learned from Aliturus, struck the lute and sang on. When he had finished the lines composed, he improvised, using grandiose comparisons in the spectacle unfolded before him. His face began to change. He was not moved, it is true, by the destruction of his country's capital but he was delighted and moved with the pathos of his own words to such a degree that his eyes filled with tears on a sudden at last he dropped the lute to his feet with a clatter and wrapping himself in the sirma stood as petrified like one of those statues of niobe which ornamented the courtyard of the palatine soon a storm of applause broke the silence but in the distance this was answered by the howling of multitudes no one doubted then that caesar had given command to burn the city so as to afford himself a spectacle and sing a song at it End of section 12.